Welcome to the third episode of Contra. My guest is Josh Nobleman. When Josh and I have had conversations in the past, I've always really taken a lot out of them. He's he's a guy with some really well thought out opinions on topics, but he's also flexible. He's he's one of the things I respect most about him is his open mindedness, and he, he's just very unique in that his opinion on any given topic is hard to predict until he actually articulates it, and. I think that actually indicates how he isn't just possessed by some ideology. He isn't just a a left-wing guy or a right-wing guy. He's somebody that's clearly thought out and a lot spend a lot of time um, weighing the pros and cons. So he's he's an interesting guy to to speak to because of that. Um, I really think that we should all cultivate friendships with people like Josh. If anything, this podcast is about having friends whom you both respect and disagree with on some topics. I think this serves as a sanity check and keeps you from becoming a mouthpiece for whatever ideology is most appealing to you at its surface. Anything that you can have an opinion on that has to do with human beings is inevitably going to be complex with a lot of nuance. Certainly, we were all entitled to our own opinions about these things. However, if you can't find anybody that you disagree with, um, but you also respect, then I think that you've got at least two problems. You are possessed by an ideology or a certain way of thinking, and you're on a path to becoming more possessed. Um, This reminds me of something that a friend of Josh said to me at a get-together, that if you find a media source without any bias, then all you've done is found a media source that shares your bias. We touch on a few of Josh's values during this conversation. His core value is balance, and this seems to permeate all aspects of his life. Relationships, opinions, his career as a lawyer, and even his physical practices of rock climbing and acro yoga. One of the things we discuss is his use of a very deliberate journaling practice. He uses this journal to track and manage the distribution of his time and effort across various life goals. This is one of the, the key takeaways I'm, uh, I'm going to bring into my life from what Josh just said, aside from um, all, the, all the pontificating we've done on uh, various tangents. Um, so yeah, like, like I said, we don't, we don't stick to any one topic, um, but it's, it was an interesting conversation to me nonetheless. Um, if you're interested in that... Um, politics, work, friendship. I'd love to hear what you thought of this podcast and our many tangents. Enjoy. Welcome to Contra. This is Josh Nobleman. Uh, I wanted to bring Josh into the podcast uh, because he was a guy that I found really hard to place on any definitive spot on the ideological spectrum. I'm talking about left and right. But I think you know it's it's more complex than that. He's a guy that has complex opinions and has really well thought out his position on things. And I feel like he also, despite having thought out those positions and come to a logical place, he's actually listening to to people who are talking to him. So, so it was funny. We were actually planning to do this on another topic, um, but when Josh came in today, we started talking about some some life philosophies and directions for the for where I wanted to go with this podcast. And uh, we decided to switch it up and, and talk about where uh, the reason I asked him to be on the podcast in the first place, which was his openness, and uh, you know the now the uh, the open approach that he's he's going to take with life. So uh, yeah, so Josh, welcome. 
Greg, thanks for hosting the dinner that you hosted and the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no problem, man. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. I listened to a couple of the episodes and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, from the name of the podcast, Contra, and uh, broad description, it, I was expecting debate. Yeah. And I was expecting some sort of head-to-head, which is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with two people engaging each other and having an argument or um, finding where they agree and disagree. But when I listened to what little I did of the first few, I, I found that you did a great job of listening to what that person had to say and really putting out their personality. Yeah. Well, I actually, I really appreciate that, man. And that comes as a real like big compliment from you because I perceive that in you as well. Right. Um, it's like when you go to the gym and the guy deadlifting 3,000 pounds tells you like, hey, man, nice pull-ups. And you're like, yeah. So, hey, good so form. yeah, I appreciate good that, form. man. <laughs> um, and we were talking before about, about Joe Rogan. That's kind of like the the approach I'm going for a bit. Um, I actually – the one pet peeve I have on his show is that when there's some people he gets on have a bit of – they say some ridiculous stuff and both on the left and the right. And I sometimes feel that he's not hard enough on them. Um in that he doesn't really go deep and ask them to like really question how they got to those conclusions and if that data is accurate because he has such a great memory you know from listening to him and i just know there's some there's some guess that he'll have and be so far to the right and he'll just kind of let them go and then guess on the left that will just be so different from those those presenting such different facts but you know there is an art to that and you have to let somebody get their opinion out there Seems like he has a priority of making that person feel comfortable and seeing what comes of it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right. Yeah, that's something I've learned a lot from him. We were talking earlier about Jordan Peterson, and I thought his uh, some of his debate tactics are, are underhanded and a bit. I don't know. I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but yeah, rather than trying to bring people together, he's using it as an adversarial engagement. Um, Yeah. And what I saw from that was that Jordan Peterson's priority is to sell books, which is power to him. He's doing a good job of it. If his priority was to uh, build bridges and uh, find meaningful discussion on any of the debates that he's hosting, or at least the ones I've seen, uh, I think he would have approached things differently. Um, the specific example we were talking about was uh, when he made a, a great point uh, to counter uh, what one person had said about uh, how he can uh, find what what was his right to offend so many people. And he just pointed out to her the, the flaw in her reasoning, which is, we're having a debate right now and you're offending me with your opinions, but I welcome that. Yeah. Um, she was stunned into silence for, for a couple of moments and that would have been a great chance for him to, to reach out a hand and say, you know, we're not so different and, and, uh, let's, let's find some common ground here. Or even if we are different, let's, uh, take this opportunity to, uh, 
um, find out what we have in common. Um, but instead he, he pointed at her and said, gotcha, which yeah. is just a, a great, a great, uh, uh, way to sell books. Yeah. yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, I think I have, I'm too much of a Jordan Peterson fan to like talk about him too much. I almost feel like I don't want to be accused of idol worship and I also don't want to be guilty of it. So I, I've tried kind of carefully here. Um, but hearing him kind of analyze a lot of those things, he does, he actually admits to those, you know, failures as a person that he's a bit, he gets combative when he feels attacked by somebody. Um, so I, I think I agree. I, I think he, I guess, and I, he does want to sell books, but I, I do think he's being honest in his attempt um, to have his message, which he believes is, is something people need to hear, spread far and wide. I think that's his like his fundamental purpose more so than I don't think he's primarily financially motivated, but I think that would be something that, you know, is not, is not an easy thing to, it's, it's, it's a subjective opinion that I hold and I don't, I wouldn't try to, you know, convince you of it necessarily. Um, he's, he's human. Yeah. And, yeah, and for sure. I have that snapshot of him and I don't know more of his work. I haven't read his self-help books. Um, and until I do, uh, what's interesting to me about our conversation about this is just that, um, it's the standard that we hold, um, people from the right and left to, um, what I've heard said before, um, from people from different backgrounds, uh, is that if you are listening to someone talk about environmental, uh, if someone has has um, an environmental agenda, um, they don't hold themselves to as high debate standards because they tend to justify, well, I'm rooting for a good cause here. Oh, yeah. So you mean anybody with an agenda? Generally, like, anyone with an agenda, but yeah. those who have an easier time justifying their agenda as being one that, uh, that is for the better. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that's something, that's something that's interesting about our times is it's like, I think, you know, if you go back, let's say a hundred years in politics, not that I can accurately place this there, but there's politicians on either side from my understanding, and they're both advocating for a certain position on things. But I, I think maybe the fundamental difference is like they're advocating and they believe they're right. And they they at least believe that the other person believes they're right. Whereas now it's almost like, I believe I'm right. And I believe the other person is evil. Like, and they, they know they're wrong, but they're like lying. It's like, that's both sides paint the other in that way. It's like, you don't just, you're not just wrong. Like you, you know, you're wrong and you're evil. A great book that covers this idea, and I don't know if it's distinctly a modern idea, but um, certainly has its roots in the people who we consider to be the founders of modern political theory, John Stuart Mill, um, Immanuel Kant. Uh, these guys founded the harm principle mm -hmm. as we articulate it now. Um, 
and I'm sorry I digressed here. The the book that I'm talking about is The Righteous Mind, um, where it talks about the uh, found foundation of the harm principle and how that is not the sole value that our society uses to uh, evaluate what's good mm-hmm. uh, in law and in most institutions. That's what's written into stone. The harm principle. The harm principle. Uh, but can you define that? Sure. Uh, the podcast is going to be rated R for a few seconds here. <laughs> sure. Uh, but to take an example from that book, let's say a man goes to the grocery store once a week. He buys a chicken. Mm-hmm. He then, in the privacy of his own home, cooks the chicken. Sorry, in the I reverse the order here. In the privacy of his own home. He puts on a condom, has sex with the chicken, and then cooks it and eats it. Yeah. And if you asked, if you posed that scenario to most people and asked them if the man did something wrong, Mm -hmm. probably in our society, in the Western educated democratic industrial society, most people would not say that he did something morally wrong, but they would hesitate for a few seconds. Right. Yeah. And that hesitation, or if there was an objection, that objection mm-hmm. would be based on something other than the harm principle. Right. Okay. The man didn't harm anyone. Yeah. If you asked someone and they had a gut reaction saying, yes, he did something wrong, and you asked them why, they might justify it by saying, well, he did harm someone, or he is more likely to harm someone because of mm-hmm. his behavior with this chicken. That's just based on their ideology, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rationale. It's it's mm-hmm. a rationalization after they've had that gut reaction. It's kind of like a, a disgust reaction. Yeah. Disgust is a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. There's a few experiments the book references about disgust, where if you ask people how morally blameworthy someone's actions were, and you ask them to rate that out of a scale of 10, mm-hmm. they'll have a higher rating, a more blameworthy rating after that person has just washed their hands than if they hadn't the Mm. person feels cleaner and they feel more justified in casting blame similarly if you ask the same question when the person is standing beside a garbage can that's been sprayed with a fart smell yeah they're gonna say that they're more disgusted by someone's actions Hmm. than if they're standing beside a garbage can that doesn't have that smell and I'm assuming it's not just like the word disgust. Like they'll use other terms to describe it, not just yeah, like, like terms like it's reprehensible. Exactly. Yeah. But disgust is a pretty accurate way to to capture. Oh yeah. Uh, how how people feel. So the book really gets under uh, the fact that we're motivated by more than just the harm principle. But I think, hmm. and not just me. I mean, in this book one of the main differences that they illustrate between the right and the left is that the, uh, the right is, uh, has a higher disgust sensitivity. Not necessarily. I think disgust measures any, uh, any violation of what you consider to be, uh, sacrosanct, whether that's, uh, you know, the harm principle or 
or something else, but that there are more uh, ways to find that. So the right was would be uh, able to find that the values of family, of tradition, mm-hmm. of religion, of authority, of um, I think I mostly covered them. Yeah, uh, could be violated, and and that is uh, something that could elicit dis- disgust. Yeah, um, yeah. Which uh, to me that that does a pretty good job of explaining why twenty years ago and more recently even uh, the right was mainly the side that uh, had an objection to gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And why you could see, putting yourself back 20 years, why someone from the right would see someone from the left at that angle as being not just uh, reasonably disagreeing, but crazy or evil Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Because someone from the left wouldn't recognize those values of family, tradition, sanctity. Sorry, it was one that I had missed there. Yeah. as being something that should be recognized, should be written into stone. Yeah, well, I, I've heard the same thing. Yeah, I think, but I mean, I guess it's the same. It's it's just statistically those people. Um, but I do find it interesting. I think the right is, it is, it's appealing, like just like the right, the, both the right and the left are appealing at like multiple levels of resolution. So some people have like a very narrow, like shallow understanding of these left-wing values and continue, like they're a mouthpiece for them and they espouse them. And then similarly on the right, they have a very like simple understanding of values. And we're both able to, like both sides then, you know, as you go up, people are better able to articulate their beliefs. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if like... Being somebody that's more right wing, I, I think, I do think my, like I, I still, it's hard to even articulate this because I, I believe my, the ideology, um, right now is more what people need to hear. Um, but I think anybody would say that on either side, of course. But I do think, like in in general, our world has swung too far, like our not our world. Um, our society has swung too far left, too far reliant on government institutions and demanding of government institutions without like, what can I contribute back? Um, and not even back to a government, but just like to society and to myself, like how can I take after myself? Um, that's more of my concern with the left right now is it's, it's just like a, an entitled entitlement thing that, um, I think I have as much like weirdness. Like if somebody has some sexual practice that I don't participate in, I find it weird. Like, but I don't think I'm disgusted by it as much as like a lot of people on the right would be like, if somebody's into like, like, you know, to be totally honest, like homosexuality, it it grosses me out. Like to think about that sex act, it grosses me out, but I don't like hate people that are gay by any means. Like, like I have, friends that are gay and it's, it's but it's like and i think i'm trying to think of like other sex acts that are like 
like that gross me out, but that I don't find like morally reprehensible. I actually I can't right now think of a good one. I don't want to think of some really weird one and for people to say, oh, Greg thinks gays are just like people that do this other weird yeah, thing. We don't, but, we don't have to go there. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. Yeah. But you've opened up um, an interesting line, uh, which is separate and distinct from from the line that I had uh, had set out there to divide or, or to define right and left. Yeah, totally. Um, tangent there, didn't I? Which is self, no, I mean, <laughs> I, self-reliance uh, is not something that fits neatly into those value systems of family, tradition, uh, etc. Um, or into the, uh, the idea of openness to experience versus the value of tradition, mm-hmm. which is another typical way that you, you might uh, d- define those those political stances um, because you do see that. And I, I think that the, the left is, is more likely to, uh, to value uh, caring, yeah. um, but, you know, may define it differently in that mm-hmm. caring both sides value that, but the right may see that more as being about justice that uh, each each person gets what they deserve, what they earn, yeah. yeah, and and on the other side, it would be each person gets uh, a fair chance, yeah. Um, at that point, um, I think I found John Rawls to be uh, a, a useful uh, philosopher. Uh, he's a guy who had this idea and I, I may not get it perfect here, <laughs> yeah. but uh, he wanted, uh, he wanted people to uh, start from a blind draw in that a good society would be shaped by people who didn't know what, what place they'd start in. You could okay. be a millionaire, you could be handicapped, you could be um, disadvantaged in various ways. Uh, you just don't know where you're going to start. And in those conditions, if there was that blind curtain, then what would you want society to look like? And I think if you accept the premise that he's trying to create, in that case, it makes more sense to me to have a society based on the value of caring Mm -hmm. that the left uses as opposed to the right. I guess my my critique of that... um of left in general would be that the problem with it is that that is such a such a good point like it's such like the fundamentals of caring for your human being is so compelling and such a powerful statement that the fact that it continues to fail because it always gets co-opted by these sadistic dictators who rise to power and abuse it for their own um to further their own means it just like but the ideology is so toxic that it remains like that's why it's such a, so persistent as opposed to something like um uh like monarchy right where it's like you can't make that compelling of an argument for for monarchy from the individual point of perspective like individuals it's a harder argument to make i think whereas it's such a um it's such a seducing thought that like the equality of 
like not even a quality of opportunity, but just like, yeah, quality of outcome. It, it's, it, it's so appealing, but it's just, you impose that upon people and the people that rise to power in that system are not the people you want to be running that system. And it just never works out. It always works out that way. It always has. And I just suspect that it always will is my fear of the left-wing ideologies coming to power, I guess. Yeah, that divide between idealism and reality, it's always a tricky one. Yeah, and that's like when these people, like for example, the like whenever when you, if you hear somebody that's like an extremist on the left, like they're, I mean, extremists on the right are certainly no better, I guess, but you'd think extremists on the left, their whole party, their whole platform or outspoken, like highly outspoken people on the left, I should say, their whole platform is about caring, but what are they doing? Like when they're speaking out, like you don't hear about like, there is a massive like Twitter outpouring from the left wing activists, like of love for this couple that got married or like you don't, it's all about like hate and revulsion and like trying to hurt people. Like that's where it's like people lose their jobs and like that's what where I see the most activity on this side. So it's like my fear is that the ideology is preached like the gospel is on love and compassion, but all the people running it just want to hurt people. Outrage. And yeah, yeah. And like that's what we've seen politically. And then the same people that are trying to bring the system of dominance to Canada to the West in general, they're acting in the ways that these dictators did on a much you know more passive scale, but they're using those same pathologies to justify their abhorrent behavior towards others, like their sadistic behavior towards others. And so you can already see it happening. And even though it's not even a real, a real political movement, that kind of like, you know, justice warrior, whatever, social justice warrior type culture, that's kind of those guys kind of like articulate my fear of what an extreme left political party would always end up being. I see outrage as a useful tool in that historically it's been the momentum that pushed past whatever cultural inertia kept us thinking that, for example, uh, weed was a dangerous drug that should never be smoked. Yeah. That, that you know, gay marriage was a sin. Um, expressing outrage is is helpful. It gets votes, it gets likes, it gets followers, it gets shares. Yeah. Um, and I don't see why it follows that outrage is mutually exclusive from caring. Yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're right. I would have to uh, kind of pick apart what I said there in more detail to even address that because. Uh, I guess it wasn't quite outrage that I meant. It was more. It wasn't the it wasn't the emotion of outrage. It was the attack. Censorship. Like, um, censorship, I guess, but it's more like when people get fired for dressing up. Like when somebody dresses up as like they do blackface or something, and there are some people that like there's some very offensive ways to do blackface. Like I admit that you know, like the blackface. I'm not a proponent of it, but you know, some people in their Halloween costumes they. They dress as like Blade from Wesley Snipes and they do blackface, but it's because they fucking love Wesley Snipes. Like he's an awesome yeah. And they're doing awesome it character. maybe on their own time outside of work yeah, hours. Yeah, and it's like, it's out of like, especially when it's out of homage, like it's not just like, look at this idiot black person. Like they're, they're doing it because they love Michael Jackson, right? Out of context. 
Yeah. yeah I, at least that's maybe what I'm putting on top of this you know, situation I'm constructing. But it's people who try to get them fired and them hurt. And even if it wasn't more egregious, but to like um, hurt their character like this, again, I, I mentioned that this was going to come up because it's on my mind that uh, that 16-year-old kid from the Catholic school, that people, when he was seen like engaging in that weird altercation with the, the, Native, the uh, Native American drummer, and he's smirking and people wanted to like out him and find where he lives and hurt him. And like, like that's the kind of, it's more than just outrage because outrage can be contained with when you're temperate with love and compassion, but this kind of like, like hurt him, find him. That's, that's what bothers me when it's a 16 year old boy who's, you know, we all did stupid things when we're 16, right? Yeah. I, I actually don't know all that much about the context of what he did, but um, I, I gather from the context that this was uh, a, a serious left-leaning spin from the media about an event that yeah. um, where where this boy uh, really didn't do something so egregious that his life should be thrown to the crowds. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I do see uh, the break a few eggs to make an omelet mentality um similar similar with the do you believe that or do you just see that that's their ideology i i see that as being um it it, it's out there you know in the me too movement as well Mm -hmm. um i would see comments like um if a few innocent men have to be convicted because uh, of a larger movement that is a necessary cultural shift then so be it Hmm. And um, I also see that that narrative is an incredibly useful one for anyone who wants to demonstrate how dangerous outrage can be. Yeah. And so I would caution to really look at the numbers, um, which is hard for us to do just sitting here and talking. Yeah. yeah. But I would just say that it's it's worthwhile to look at um, what what amount of people who whose lives are really ruined by this um mm-hmm. can they recover uh are these eggs really broken <laughs> yeah and i actually think it comes down to like this because despite the numbers i would i feel like i would have the same belief even if i was if i was wrong and who it because I, I well actually i know i'm wrong like for example i think i'm sure if we took every woman at their word about who, which men raped them. Like, yeah, we'd probably have like a few innocent men convicted of rape and lots of women that were raped get justice. But where I'm, where I'm leery is not so much to try to balance the scales. It's, I don't want to, I'm very hesitant to have government to have more power and the state to give, like, I don't like the idea of, of collective as much as I like the ideal of individual freedom. And I just think that's a society, that's like what a society I want to be part of more that is like protects the individual freedoms to, of this individual, sorry, individual freedoms from not being imposed upon by the state or the collective. Um, and I know that it is not often like the most utilitarian approach because sometimes when you advocate for the individual against the collective, you end up hurting more people like in this um, case with like the amount of women who would um, falsely accuse somebody of rape. I'm assuming that much more women who are accusing somebody of rape. They actually were raped. They're not falsely accusing. 
I don't have data for that, but I, you know, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm assuming that it's the case. Does that, does that make any sense? Am I, am I going anywhere with that? I might need to paraphrase it just to make sure I understand. Okay. Um, we're talking about the individual and the state collective, um, collective rights and collective, uh, movements, uh, as opposed to one person getting trampled in that movement. Yeah. Um, and an example of that might be, um, in, as part of the Me Too movement, uh, innocent men being convicted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm not like, I think this movement has uncovered lots of great things. So I don't even, I wouldn't even actually necessarily call myself somebody on the right as much as I'm somebody who believes in individual freedom. So I think this movement should be happening and I'm actually totally fine with that. It's totally encouraging of it. Like I support, I think women should be encouraged to come forward because there's, I know there's a lot of women that have had sexual violence done against them and they don't come forward for whatever cultural reason, for whatever legal reason, like they just don't come forward. And I think that needs to change. Like women need to be told that it's okay to confront your accusers. But where I think the movement goes too far is saying, let's impose on the individual rights of people to get a fair shake at a trial and just throw them away without the key. Yeah. Um, whether that's coming from society or just the fact that they'll get fired, they'll or kicked out of university or whatever. That's where I think we go too far. Like we we've decided on an individual basis. Every individual deserves a fair trial mm -hmm. as best as we can possibly give them. Yeah. And I think for whatever collective reason, we can't discard those individual rights. But I know that's just that's just my personal ideology, and I'm not hundred percent convinced it's right. Yeah. What I would question about that, though, is that there is, by default, such a thing as a fair trial, in that the justice system, yes, we rely on that, and mm -hmm. that's that's what Oh, I should have brought up trials with the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for example, um, the Witsuwin Nation... The injunction that the uh, government received against them um, in order to build the natural gas pipeline, uh, regardless of your stance, whether it's pro-pipeline or not, um, the injunction itself uh, was obtained by people with vastly greater resources than this uh, community. Yeah, uh, The lawyer that they hired a couple of weeks ago before the trial wouldn't stand up um, and and the process of um, the community itself finding the consensus needed to decide to oppose and continue to oppose mm -hmm. um, before they even step in the courtroom uh, is, is, is a, a huge obstacle. And then inside the courtroom, the definition of um, serious and irreparable harm that you need to uh, uh, balance the convenience of each side to get that injunction or decide not to give it mm -hmm. um, doesn't consider environmental harms uh, that would permanently come about because that injunction was granted. Um, it, 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 just, it just doesn't consider them, uh, especially not the environmental harms that wouldn't be easily connected to the group itself. I, I'm, I kind of lost you for a second there. I, I yeah, it's true. I digressed a lot. Um, I think we went from uh, why uh, 
individuals deserves to have their sh- chance at a fair trial. Yeah. Um, and I think that the objection to that- And you were saying that, that this, yeah. this village, their tribe, had an unfair trial because yeah, of the, the preconditions? Yeah, both, both the preconditions and the conditions of of the, the legal test itself yeah. uh, were, were inherently unfair, is the mm-hmm. argument I would make. And I should state at this point that, number one, uh, I'm not a practicing lawyer right now. I'm not insured to give legal advice. And even if I was, this isn't legal advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, even though I do work for the provincial government, these are not my professional views. Okay. They're my personal views. So that's out of the way. Okay. And we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. No, no. It's totally interesting. Okay. I'm enjoying it. Uh, But just leading it back to... uh, what we were talking about a fair trial for a person who's convicted of, of rape or assault. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you wouldn't have to look too far before you find that the conditions of the trial itself, uh, for the accuser Mm -hmm. are pretty strongly weighed against that accuser. Um, and, and so this idea of let's give this person a fair trial it's fair by virtue of being adversarial, you know, and that mm. works really well for finding truth in some cases. Right. And in other cases, it works really well for finding out who has the biggest guns. Mm-hmm. And I think what this movement is trying to do is to give bigger guns to one of those sides. Yeah. Um, which isn't always female, but typically the accused is going to be a man yeah yeah well for sure (laughs) yeah it's almost always the accused is a man not always the accuser is a man or as a woman i mean yeah but um although yeah i've I've seen someone actually i've seen some both sides there's one on reddit i saw where is it's like this the article said like woman has sex with her husband under threat of machete and like somebody corrected it like it's probably some men's rights expert like woman raped man like as in, like, you can't just say that right. had sex. Like, she right. had a machete. Like, she raped mm-hmm. him. But yeah. that was just, you know, somebody getting really upset at, like, the one right. guy that was raped by a woman and pointing out, oh, it still happens. It's like, well, yeah. that's like saying you shouldn't go in the ocean because there's sharks. Like, not for any people as get a, eaten by sharks. <laughs> as, as an aside, uh, there was a pretty funny Reddit article about a, a guy that talked about, uh, you know, I'll kill them with kindness. And he just... He named his machete kindness. <laughs> yeah. It was a Florida guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, where were we? <laughs> well, yeah, we were. Um, what were we talking about? I think it was about the Me Too movement. And yeah, then, right. And just somebody getting an unfair trial. Yeah, um, getting an unfair or, trial. But I guess like the point of the trial, it that, is, oh, is yeah. not to it's not to get justice. For the woman, it's to find out whether, as a society, we can choose to punish the man or not. And I would say, like, I guess, I guess yeah. that goes down to what is justice, which you can probably answer better than I can. Well, I mean, I, I can just, I'm informed by doing sentencing hearings for a number of of uh, accused. Yeah. Uh, when when I was an article student at the law center uh, in Victoria, and. You know, there's various reasons why we uh, want to um, punish someone using the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system, which is a very heavy handed. And one of them is deterrence. Another one is justice. 
Um, it's not supposed to be vengeance. So yeah. uh, finding that that fine line. But the fact that what we is have the difference a, between justice and vengeance? Oh, great question. I don't know. I was just going to point out before we get there okay. that we have something called a vi- victim fine surcharge and okay. victim impact statements. So there is consideration built into the system for victims to feel that they have justice served without necessarily it being vengeance. And hmm. and I think that does inform the difference, at least in our society, yeah. that vengeance is from you. It's personal. Yeah. And justice is something that comes from a greater power, uh, something that you and the person who perpetrated the crime and all the witnesses to the crime and anyone else who's remotely involved in it has decided by virtue of living in the society that this is how it works. Yeah. And that I don't get to decide because I was the one who was attacked. I'll have some input. The person who decides takes it into consideration. But yeah. But and doesn't that person who gets justice to them, it might be indistinguishable from vengeance, right? Person who receives it. Well, I mean, no, the person who, who receives justice in terms of like, um, say somebody raped me, mm-hmm. they are sentenced to death. I might... I, I might say, way. I might, well, either as the accused or the accuser, if I'm the accuser, I'm saying, and I'm looking at my rapist, I could say justice, but just in as easily mind. say revenge. Okay. You in know, your mind, it, you're thinking revenge. In my mind, I'm feeling revenge. And I imagine most people would be, that had a crime done against them. But I think in both a practical sense and theoretically, there's a key difference. Practically yeah. speaking, uh, there are going to be obstacles to you getting the vengeance that you want because you have to respect due process and procedural fairness yeah the person who's being accused will have a chance to defend themselves they'll have a chance to hear the case that's made against them they'll know that the person who's hearing the case will be the one who decides they'll know that the person who uh uh, hears the case is unbiased yeah um and that they haven't made up their mind before uh before the evidence has been presented um that there will be a rationale that they have access to yeah. um, that they may even have an appeal mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of those things present a practical problem for the person who wants pure vengeance. Yeah. For uh, sure. And, and on a theoretical level, I think those all, this will speak as well. And do you think like this idea of justice is well represented in our legal system? I think there's a lot to clean up. Um, the example I gave of the injunction with Witsuin Nation Nation and the natural pipeline. Um, I mean, that's, I'll, I'll point out at this point, I, I came to UVic, studied uh, environmental law. Mm -hmm. I went through the environmental law clinic and did the environmental law club and, and the class as well. Uh, They're not very creative with their naming. It's ELC, (laughs) everything, but, uh, uh, I didn't end up practicing in that field until very recently, um, where I'm now working for wildlife and habitat. Um, and, that, and that's mostly practical because I had to article, had to yeah. find uh, work and get experience. Um, but I at least found through that admittedly biased education that there are a ton of problems uh, with our legal system when it comes okay. to um, being willing to hear uh, with procedural fairness 
any project that's going to benefit the economy. Right. So all those factors that I just listed about presenting evidence, hearing, uh, hearing the side, not having bias, um, there's, you don't have to go far to find examples where uh, the justice system hasn't properly done that. Um, to benefit a corporation who's going to do something that's going to long-term detriment our environment. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and that's, that's just an easy one for me, but I think that maybe what you might have had in mind when you asked about justice might've been between people. Um, yeah, I, I think I meant it broadly, but yeah, for, between people as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not as familiar with with uh, sexual assault cases, um, but I understand from some of my colleagues that it, it's it's difficult before you set foot in the courtroom to make that accusation, and that's you know yeah. the large thing that 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 the Me Too movement is is changing on a cultural level. Yeah, and I think you know, with the momentum of it, they're 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 trying to make those changes within the courtroom system too. For example, uh, uh, avoiding litigation tact, uh, avoiding um, cross examination tactics that and antagonize uh, the victim again yeah. and uh, force them to, you know, talk about their sexual history as though that's important. Yeah, and that's craziness. Like I, I can totally get behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah because i mean there's a there's a pretty easy to see reality like most of the legal profession is conservative and composed of old white men yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know is that is, joke is that is that reflected in the younger um like the lawyers coming up now how are those uh how does that look i've worked in firms where uh the division has been about 50 50 uh, men and women mm-hmm um and what about in your schooling was it the same i would say it's even greater actually uh and i i could just be pulling this out of nowhere you know but just my impression is is that it's there's a few more women in the profession right now okay so that's going to change over the next 50 years yeah i I think that that much is clear that much is clear like you hear that in in speeches and things like that okay um, i guess i don't hear too many lawyer speeches so i wouldn't know but thank god (laughs) 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 yeah where do you hear lawyer speeches? Um, well, when I was practicing, kind of wherever you turn, there's whenever there's the training sessions that you have to take, yeah, ten hours a year or whatever. Right, yeah, um, they always introduce and and there's yeah. usually some like professional development type exactly. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did the same thing in the military. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, you hear it. Yeah, you hear the old like, here's how we're doing as a group and. Yeah, we're always, it's always improving. It's never like right. We're getting worse. We're much worse than we were off last year. Last year there was lots yeah. of great yeah. soldiers in the military. This year, uh, I look around me. I don't really <laughs> like the guys to my left. I don't really yeah. like the guys to my right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 It's always everything's better all the time. It's better today. Yeah, it's I saw I saw a pretty good show on uh, on YouTube Premium. Yeah. Uh, I normally wouldn't have just gone out to, to be like, oh, what's on YouTube Premium, but. I just saw it on my feed or whatever, 
which is a horrible word. But, <laughs> uh, on your feed while you're eating yeah, at your trough. Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. Your iPad trough. Yeah, my iPad trough there. <laughs> click, click. So the show is called Wayne and it's... Um, I've seen some of them. You've seen some of them? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just for whoever's listening out there, it's... Uh, it's it was a very similar to another Netflix special called uh, End of the Fucking World, uh, excuse my French, which is uh, about a, a boy who thinks he's psychopathic and decides he's going to take a girl out in order to murder her. And uh, as a spoiler alert, they uh, end up falling in love, but the world doesn't, uh, doesn't really allow that. Hmm. Um, and in this case, the show is a little bit softer on that particular point. But it's still about a boy who who who's still learning how to feel um, and trying to express himself in ways besides violence. And he finds that there is this girl who, you know, brings him to uh, to find something new and, mm-hmm. and inspires him and ties his life together. And he's trying to hang on to that throughout all their adventures. And and there's one point in the show. Uh, you're gonna have to remind me of 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 what we were just talking about <laughs> yeah, for sure yeah um were you talking about wayne let's let's continue on that i like that show it's I, a I like, great show you know at first i yeah. was like i was a little bit like i was almost ready to turn it off because there's a couple of the characters i was like ah, i fucking hate this person they're such right. a dick but yeah. then after you have some they all have redemptive moments or not all of them but like a lot of these ones that you hate they have these redemption things and then they do something again you're like ah, oh, you fucking idiot yeah but doesn't pull punches no, no, and it's like they're actually like they're pretty three-dimensional people and I I like that about that show. It's it's really not afraid to have the hero every once in a while like be a piece of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and not even the, but that like the girl is real his partner is like does these really cool things and then sometimes she's just so shitty. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's yeah. not the kind of poor decision on TV that drives me nuts. Uh it's not, you know, running towards the zombies. And it's yeah, not, yeah, it's not uh, stupidity. It's it's yeah. like she's un- makes unethical decisions and self sabotage. Yeah, 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 yeah. But realistic self sabotage. I thought. Yeah, um, it it does that well. I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah. A, I don't know. I I've never really thought about self sabotage as a as a concept or or, or how realistic that is because it's it's a very effective dramatic device mm-hmm. and uh, it's just one of those great ways that TV shows keep us interested. Um, I believe in self-sabotage as a real concept. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I wanted to remember why I brought Wayne up because there was oh. a great uh, <laughs> scene from it that I just wanted to. Yeah, I don't know. Well, before that, we were talking about, um, you know, these stupid uh, speeches you get where you're, you're at, you're, you're hearing a lawyer speak. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> oh that, that was it. Okay. So yeah. there's a principal's convention. And the principal okay. of his school is talking to a bunch of other principals across the country. Yeah. He's yeah. trying to raise money for uh, getting some tech supplies, new iPads or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, – and I'm uh, again, this is going to be a bit of a spoiler, but it's, well, it's nothing that's going to ruin the plot. Yeah. Um, the, and so he, he finds a speech on the internet and decides he's going to copy it because he's not that passionate about his job and – and he just wants to get up there and uh, take care of business and, and go home. He finds that the principal before him has already done the same thing. And so he goes up there with no speech. And he talks about how he has, he looks into his heart 
when he uh, when he's writing his speech. He wanted to take it from the heart, and he looked in there and he saw hate, yeah. real adult hate <laughs> for the chill for the kids in the school, and that woke me up a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear some speeches about that because I I would have supported him, you know. It was someone who yeah. opens up that much about this is how I really feel, and it means we've got to do better. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Here's 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 a problem statement. Um, yeah, whereas yeah. that you know that cliche I was using that I imagine embodies those lawyers giving those speeches and the same the people in the military. It's always that like you got self congratulatory. Yeah. And like collective congratulatory type thing, um, yeah. It's it's hard to be popular saying we've got to be better, and especially like I suck and we've got to be better. Right. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. And I don't. I didn't hear that a lot in the military. A lot of ego behind speaking, and you know, it's your professional uh, reputation is important in the military, mm-hmm. right? Like it's how you. It, it, especially as you get higher in rank, it's more important to how you get promoted is your reputation. Um, yeah. And to like stand there and be like, if you were to say like, I don't like soldiers these days, like yeah. people aren't going to be it's after true. that. Yeah. In, in, in law, you've, all you have is your reputation. Yeah. And it's acceptable at some point to be able to criticize the legal system mm-hmm. and point out its flaws and foibles and, and, you know, it's, like one of my favorite jokes is uh, how many judges does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Change? <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. But <laughs> it's another thing to go out and say, I have doubts about whether I'm a competent lawyer. Yeah. Because I don't think I'm doing a good job representing my clients because I don't care enough about them. And yeah. This is a problem. Or for yeah. any reason. Yeah. Okay. To express doubts about your abilities is is professionally dangerous mm-hmm. because it's built right into uh the uh, legal professional act yeah uh that you have to be competent to represent your clients mm-hmm. and it's broadly defined so uh people were careful people are you know it's- yeah and that's something we were i was actually talking about with alicia the last episode um i did of this podcast is a uh, vulnerability and how that is kind of like I think we were talking about how that's kind of like a feminine trait and you know that's one place where maybe we'll we'll really get to see over the next 50 years as like all these female lawyers that you went to school with are coming into the system um is the situation is the will people be doing those speeches be more vulnerable with their own problems and is that going to become more accepted in the law community when it's not just a bunch of old men and you have 50 50 men and women are is that vulnerability going to come in here in, into the legal profession like do you see your colleagues your female colleagues being more vulnerable with uh i can make that connection but not directly no i don't see them being more vulnerable because they're women i mm-hmm. see the fact that there are in a general sense more women in the profession shaping the profession in such a way very gradually because of the nature of the profession every change mm-hmm. is gradual yeah uh to uh to, to make those minor changes so that uh someone can be on maternity leave and still resume a successful career um so that someone can um you know make choices to balance their lifestyle and and that won't be held against them 
hmm. um, that it won't be any longer acceptable or even tolerable uh, to uh, decide that someone isn't a good hire because they're of marriageable age and will probably have a kid in a few years. Yeah. Um, and those changes are very gradually, I think, going to result in a space where it's a little bit more acceptable to say, hey, listen, we need to fix this. Yeah. And and I need to fix my practice and I need help with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, not, I, I just, I don't really see, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I just, I don't think it, because you're a woman in the legal profession, you're more likely to be any kind of way. I just see that, Mm-hmm. By and large, the number of women in the profession are going to make uh, that change because yeah, I wasn't talking yeah. about the individual basis so yeah. Marsh, but just kind of yeah, yeah, collectively, yeah. you have a more vulnerable people willing to like because I think vulnerability is one of the more like is is a is a type of bravery anyway. I'm not I don't know if it's the you know there's multiple types of bravery and one thing I've heard about is that women more often um, have like institutional bravery, so. There's this story of um, a bus full of women in, uh, you, know, you know, somewhere in the Middle East, and it's some, you know, seventy percent uh, Muslims and thirty percent Jewish women, and either Boko Haram or ISIS comes and says, "Everybody, get the fuck off the bus." Um, you know, Muslim women, you step forward. We're going to execute these these Jewish women, and none of the Muslim women step forward, and they say, "No, listen." Like, we're going to fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. If you don't step forward, we're going to kill all of you. We're just going to kill all of you. We're crazy. Step forward so we can shoot these Jewish women, and then you're going to get back on your bus keep going. None of them step forward. That's super brave. Like, that takes an incredible amount of, like, collective bravery, right? And whereas what this guy was putting forth is that men more often have this kind of physical bravery where you see somebody in the middle of the road and you're just your gut reaction is just to jump and save them. Like most of the times when you hear about somebody jumped into the water to save a drowning kid or did these like physical feats of bravery, it's most often a man because we're just programmed in that way. You haven't even thought about it with like, I almost think it's less brave in some ways because you haven't, your higher functions of your consciousness have really not thought out the consequences of that decision. Whereas these women that didn't step forward to identify themselves as, as Muslim, I think they're almost more braver than those those physical acts because they're they are very much aware that they're going to be executed, and they're choosing to to stand their ground. Um, so, I, and that's kind of the same lens, you know, less or so, but to that I view vulnerability, right? Is like like that principle in the show that's that step forward and and says like I have a problem, and you guys probably have the same problem. Like I think, you know, if there's more people that are willing to do it, not necessarily women, but if if you accept this guy's theory that women are more likely to kind of make that type of sacrifice to to say, hey, I'm willing to have my professional reputation tarnished a bit and say that I'm struggling with this, um, that it could you know ultimately result in some of these changes you're talking about in the profession. That would benefit men as well because, you know, they could they could admit that they're burnt out after, you know, five years and say, you know, hey, I've I've messed up a couple files or, or messed up a couple court cases. I need to take a break. I need to go down to a three-day work week for a year. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I might have spoken a little too soon about, you know, 
that that whole capacity thing because there are avenues for lawyers to to seek mental help and to uh, make certain admissions, but it's a fuzzy line. Yeah, yeah, you know? and it is in the military too. You know, it's like on the books, it's totally acceptable to do all those things, right? And there's rules about you can't be discriminated against, but it's the culture. And I don't think culture is something that we can just like snap and change. But it's like if I was, there'd be no administration action that could ever be taken of me. If I was in the military and once a week I went for my psychologist appointment or twice a week I went for my psychologist appointment, I wouldn't go up on any of my personal annual reports. It would just be shown nowhere. But you know my boss is going to judge me for that. Like, oh, he's going for his psych appointment again. Like, oh yeah, again, Wednesday. Oh yeah, he's off at his psych, man. Yeah. Like fucking bleeding heart like you know that would come out yeah yeah. and i don't think there's anything we can do to change it quickly it's just a matter of getting people that are care and raised in that more compassionate culture up through the ranks now i think it can go too far especially in an organization like the military whose job it is you know to kill people um but i think there is a you know with the way that um this horrifying like trend of post-traumatic stress i think that's something that needs to be addressed yeah, I mean, I I can't disagree with any of that. I think. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We don't, have to, we don't have to disagree on everything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, I, yeah, and that's, that's actually kind of like I want, almost wanted to come back to yeah. the premise of why I brought you on here for a bit is because I think you're such a measured guy that's willing to listen. And we kind of got into like a bit of the left right thing, which wasn't really my intention, but it was, it was an interesting discussion uh, nonetheless. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about that ideology because it's it's something that. I think it, what I was saying before is it shows how integrated you are, that that's something I noticed about you and made the comment on, or no, like noticed about you before. And then you had said like, this is something I'm deliberately trying to achieve in my life. That kind of, that balance um, and finding that middle ground is kind of the idea that I got from what you said. Your balance is an important concept to me. Um, I... I suppose you could start from the quote, I don't know who originally said it, and it's probably on Wikipedia somewhere, yeah. but that uh, a man should be able to uh, build a house, uh, write a poem, make love, make war, cook a meal, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, mm -hmm. you know, specialization is for insects. Yeah. And, and, that, and that was a pretty good starting point for me to try and figure out, like, what do I want to be able to do? And, um, and from there it was, what do I want to be able to feel and how do I want to be able to think? And I just like to have a variety of ways to engage. Um, if you'd, uh, if you'd actually like to read something that's kind of a middle ground, cause we were talking about this before, like your, your ideas of balance and not specializing. And then the kind of the typical more Western idea of like becoming the lightweight champion of or the heavyweight champion of the world and to do nothing else. Like that's like the kind of the idol, like you, he gets up, he's skipping rope. He, everything about him is heavyweight champion. Um, the Japanese book Musashi and his kind of ideology kind of paints it a really interesting middle ground. Huh. Um, so the guy's a fanatical um, pursuer of, of the sword, right? Like he's the best swordsman that ever lived in Japan, you know, according to, to legends and he is a real guy, but the book I'm talking about is a fictional account of his life. But he, he basically believed that to get better at this one pursuit, that he needs to know the path broadly. And his, his quote is something like, know the path broadly and see its way in all things. 
So he has his one thing, and maybe that could be practice of law, it could be rock climbing, it could be, yeah, you know, whatever. But he makes sure that he's well and well rounded. He was practicing floral arrangement. He was practicing painting. He'd have these two weeks of his life where he wouldn't even touch a sword. He would just learn from the absolute master of flower arranging how to do that. And he thought that his like the guy he would be fighting to the death two months later would be using that two weeks to practice with the sword. Yet he felt that he was better for taking that, like rounding out his practice. So he kind of holds both those opposing viewpoints that we're talking about. So I, that's kind of, anyway, I just thought that that was an interesting middle ground. That's a great example. Um, and it's interesting that you, you bring up, you know, heavyweight champion of the world. Because I immediately thought, and I, I actually thought the book you were going to bring up would be The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. I haven't read that one. It's a great book. Uh, I can show it to you later or whatever. Yeah. But uh, there's the main character um, born in South Africa as a, uh, a Boer, uh, a British, uh, I think he was orphaned. And he grows up um, surrounded by uh, or in a school of um, Afrikaans and of, uh, let's say, an another set of of uh of people who who had lived there and and fought hard to to claim the land mm-hmm. and uh surrounded by so much opposition and and uh and, and antagonism uh he he meets a role model who is the welterweight champion of of and he of south africa and he's trained to be welterweight champion of the world mm-hmm. he gives the the kid a pair of boxing gloves and from then on this goal is to become welterweight champion of the world um, and you follow his life story uh, as he becomes a lawyer, um, advocates for for um, for equal rights, uh, learns different uh, South African flowers, <laughs> you yeah. know, becomes the person that you don't exactly expect uh, the welterweight champion of the world to be. Mm-hmm. And it's fiction, but you know. I, I, I do, I was inspired by the book mm-hmm. and, uh, and I like the idea that, uh, you can, you can achieve greatness or, or at least achieve your goals, uh, without losing sight of some of the beauty in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like we have such extreme role models in our society right now. Like you have a guy like Elon Musk that I, I like, I believe he's doing great work, you know, I don't know him. Uh, I don't know his work. And like, I haven't gone into like too much detail in terms of financial analysis of his companies and whatnot, but it seems to me he's doing great things for this world. Every piece of evidence I've gotten. Um, but like a guy like that, that works like what, 18 hours a day and sleeps for four and you can call him. Like I saw this video where he was telling you know, one of his employees, like, call me at any time, any time that he's just constantly laying in wet bed. He could get a call at any time from one of his, one of his, like, I guess it's probably just upper echelon employees, but like, that's crazy. It's great that we have that guy, but it's, it's such an extreme role model that it's, I think it almost like people that want to do great things in this world, they look at something like that and almost like, well, I can never do that. Like, I certainly look at that. It's like, I can never live up to that standard. Yeah. I don't know if I would follow Elon Musk's books as an example of how to live your life. Yeah. Uh, because I don't know how many Elon Musks there are out there. <laughs> One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, 
but um, I can see the continuum that that we're talking about of, of yeah. being a great man or being a good man, mm-hmm. um, or even just being a well-rounded or balanced or sane man. <laughs> yeah, um, not to exclude women, I just mean uh, talking yeah, about it for person. myself. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I've come to the decision that that I'd rather be a good man than a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's just an excuse because I'm not, you know, inventing rockets that are going to take us to the moon, uh, and probably won't be. But uh, I, I, uh, I just have. I, I'm more convinced that that the life worth living is is one where you've formed good relationships and and support the people you care about and have time for them and uh, find joy in, in uh, most of the things that you do um, than, than making a legacy. Yeah. Which is a hard choice. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I don't want to diminish your point of that life greatness, um, but I would say, like, there's, there's something more that Elon Musk, a guy like Elon Musk is doing than just a legacy. Like, it's the world is such a genuinely better place i will i assume after he's he's gone like he's he's left such a positive impact and like how profound is it to strive for that with every step and then how how profound is it to or how valuable is it to just do what you can for those around you um like that's the balance i've tried to achieve i'm still like need a lot of work but i I think my goal is to just to do what i can for those around me while keeping myself like able to actually do that with a smile on my face of course um yeah and i like listening to that podcast with elon he doesn't have another option other than work he's not he's not forcing himself to work 20 hour days he can't help it like he you know what i mean he's not like using massive dedication like most of us would have to to put in 20 hour days he just can't help it Hmm. he can't stop he can't shut off his brain Hmm. um but anyway, yeah, I, I liked your idea of that that book, where I, I I know you said it was fiction, but somebody that achieved greatness, yeah, while still maintaining that balance, or even just goodness. Yeah, um, the, yeah, the goodness. I would say it, it was there. He never lost, and that was one of the main driving ideas about the book. Um. Yeah, although it is interesting that that this character was so driven every step of the way to. You know, almost like his heartbeat was just going welterweight champion of the world, you know. Yeah. Every waking minute was about training and making himself better. Although in the, in the style of uh, Musashi, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, an, another another opponent. Yeah. And I think it's something like, it's a really good discussion actually for, for us to have at our, like, our age. Because I think this is kind of the age where you have to be realistic. Yeah. You know, we when you're 20, you can be very idealistic and you have that you know most people work really hard in in school or i I certainly did um in school and and professionally i worked i think i worked very hard i had some balance but i worked pretty hard um whereas now in our 30s we have this kind of decision point where it's like am i going to strive to be a good man a family man and have that balance in my life or am i going to just continually risk my sanity and my wealth my enjoyment of life to just like push that extra bit. Yeah. And I'm not actually trying to undervalue either path. Cause I think, you know, if you just push 10% harder and just like kind of red line, yeah. it's not just 10% return. You get on that 
you know, you get like that result is like, you know, if they're trying to promote somebody in an office and they're all doing, you know, 10x work and one eye is going to doing 11x, like that gets you the promotion. That's might be double. And then every year you put that little extra in, like you don't know what you can achieve when you compound that. Yes. Um, but I'm also not saying that's the correct path because you, you certainly compromise to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, t- I definitely take that into account. Um, but I'm also thinking about benefits besides um, professionally. Um, mm-hmm. For example, uh, maybe to open up a little bit about myself, I, um, I, I find movement to be very important for my life. Yeah. And, and literally, balance is, is one of the most important forms <laughs> yeah. of slacklining and handstands and, yeah. uh, and, and acro uh, yoga and, and yoga itself, um, all that, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just finding time for that to, to open up and it does take time. And so I'm thinking about how I'm going to, uh, be, what capacities I'm going to have when I'm 75. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's something that occupies my thoughts when I'm 30. And th- I guess that makes me a little weird. yeah that you don't have you might not have access to that for much longer in terms of a few decades more at best right well i mean mean, that's that's what i hope to to change i hope to have some degree of control over over uh how much capacity i have when i'm 70 and 80 and 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 so on even um i i played indoor soccer when i was a teen and in high school and Growing up, it was it was all about that. Um, plen- plenty of other sports teams, and then something shifted, and it was more about uh, just finding that right balance. Mm-hmm. And from their from their competitive nature, yeah, from the competitive yeah. nature, and just and also it wasn't so much about uh, getting goals, scoring, yeah, or even uh, or even team camaraderie. It, it became more about finding the outdoors. And uh, and comparing myself to myself, um, exploring, uh, not on the soccer field, not on the soccer field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you sound like a bad soccer player. Yeah, really. <laughs> like, well, went, I don't want you on my team. It went man. full circle. <laughs> you know, when I was five, I was just the kid sitting on the uh, on the goalpost picking grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now I am again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that would... yeah. But hopefully, the I'm, I'm now picking grass like. On the mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh shifting priorities, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have you have you come to that decision of like where where you draw the line for balance? Like because you know, like have you have you decided you're only gonna work as much as it takes to make money to support that? Or are you are you trying like what are you trying to achieve professionally compared to with this type of uh, these type of other pursuits, it's a question that deserves to be asked at least a couple times a year. Yeah, um, I have a structured way of doing this, um, and it's probably boring to listen to. So uh, I'll try. I'm and, interested so far. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. In any event, uh, four times a year, you know, I just sit down and look at what kind of goals I have in my mind. Yeah. And there's five broad categories for those. Um, they're going to be uh, growth, 
So that would speak mainly to my professional goals. Okay. Um, but it could also be like learn Spanish and um, get a certification that I need, uh, acquire knowledge about something that I care about, um, get things internal. So mm -hmm. it's not just about reading this book. Uh, you know, it's not just about learning this thing. It's about learning it's so good that it's me now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's growth. Contribution is another one, which would be like, how do you give back to your community? Mm -hmm. um, I've actually found that one to be a bit of a challenge recently. Uh, there's some been some transition in my life. I, I started a new job recently. Um, you know, I've moved cities recently as well. Um, getting deeper into my relationship with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And that's all important to me. Um, and so I've, I've found that I've sort of stalled this contribution thing. Um, but I've done the yeah. same, actually. I've noticed yeah. this is a similar trend. I've been thinking about yeah. a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm at least trying to be aware of it and trying to set some five-year goals about those kinds of things, which is really hard to do. But, yeah. you know, working backwards from the five-year goals and into, into a quarterly uh, what can you realistically do in four months? Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've heard before that, you know, you, you, you've, it's easy to underestimate uh, what's possible to do in five or 10 years and very easy to overestimate what you can do in, in four months or a year or whatever. Yeah. You know, you think you can do everything. Uh, so yeah. yeah, just getting, getting a good picture perspective. Um, so what's, what's your one of your goals for that, that you've set? My one year. I haven't really thought about my one year or uh, any of your goals for that. Uh, yeah. Um, well, okay. So growth would be getting a permanent position right now. I'm on a temporary assignment yeah. at work and, uh, getting a permanent position with, you know, something that, that suits, uh, the experience I have yeah. would be uh, a pretty reasonable start. And that's, that's something that's more like a quarterly goal because, you know, four months in you could you could see yourself sort of having that conversation yeah. and and seeking so to out. do that you're just putting in maybe extra hours or yeah i'm putting the putting the effort in yeah. being thoughtful being diligent all that stuff um not every vision of four months translates easily into a uh into a, a smart goal you know into a specific yeah. measurable attainable yeah. realistic um but if you can sort of piece together enough small, smart goals, um, they're, they form what, what, what I call a sprint where you, you know, maybe it's a woodworking project, something like un under, um, passion. That was another category there. Mm -hmm. That would be, you know, m maybe one smart, uh, so, so one five-year goal could be, you know, learn enough to, to make your own table or something. Mm -hmm. um, and a four month goal might be making a couple of bowls. Yeah. Um, and a sprint. Yeah. <laughs> We've got one in front of us here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and a sprint for that could be to, uh, to just make one bowl, you know, because that isn't just one task really when you think about it, that you've got to source your tools, do the research, find them, test it out, get the safety stuff, find the place to do it. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of small things and none of it really is, is, overwhelming and, and unless you don't break it down yeah um yeah so growth contribution relationships passion and health those are the main ones and i just try and break that down into a five-year vision then a one-year vision 
and then a four month vision. And then from there, just breaking it down into what are my actual smart goals? Like, what can I, what can I really get done? And you do that quarterly. Yeah. That's a great idea. Do you come up with that? It's your own idea? Not my own idea. Um, I use a journal. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's kind of dumb that the journal is called what it is called the bullet journal method. Okay. Um, but it's good to at least have a name for it. The idea is that you reduce as much as you can from writing. So a bullet journal being, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about all the dr- bullets that I found on the ground. It's more <laughs> like, it's more like uh, if something happened today, just to pull open an entry or whatever. For instance, uh, I went to a... You're not going to bring up your uh, Google search history, are you? We get a chance to review that too. <laughs> as, how, as, as well as... <laughs> how to hide the body. <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um, I went to a conference uh, about digital government uh, uh, like last week. Um, and it, I, I would just put a little circle there saying what it was, what the event was, and the circle represents it was an event. So I don't have to write down, like, this. I went to this thing, and it was yeah. at this time, and whatever. I just write down the little circle, and uh, and that's how I know. Uh, and then from there, I would just have bullets that, that you know, form, form a, a list. Mm-hmm. And so each bullet might have its own bullet. So first speaker, I write a bullet, and then a bullet from beyond there. It's, it's not too complicated. So, but this bullet journal, is this your idea? Or no, no. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I don't actually recall the name of the person who wrote the book about it. but it's, So it's a bullet journal and it includes those quarterly reviews too. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it lends itself well to keeping track of time in, in a really minimal way. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I, I'm going to look at that. Yeah. Um, you know, actually to kind of bring it full circle a little bit, I, uh, I did a... Jordan Peterson, he has this like his one of his programs online is what is it called? Future authoring program. And you basically do a very similar thing as your quarterly reporting. Like you articulate to yourself like what it is that would make you most happy in various categories. And then you come up with plans to achieve that and break it down into like into like sub goals. And then you you actually do the opposite and you fantasize what things would make you unhappy and you say, Here's the way I'm like avoiding becoming spiteful, resentful, twisted old man, or you know, whatever, whatever thing that you most fear that you'll become. That sounds really useful. Uh, I find it incredibly difficult to to have a vision because um, the realistic critic in my head is, has a very loud voice, you know. Yeah, uh, and that might be part of the professional training, or it might just be my my disposition. That I I I self limit sometimes uh, mm-hmm. by saying, um, "Well, I don't know French, so I can't live in Montreal." You know, yeah. And, and it's very easy to point out to someone else when they tell you that that you can learn French. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I uh, there's that like comedian that does this sketch about Steve Jobs, um, 
and basically like, oh, who is it? It's Bill Burr. And he's like, he, you know, he, he basically says that like Steve Jobs led by just like putting this insane vision of the of the future forth and then just pointing at a bunch of nerds and be like, just make it happen. And they're like, but this doesn't talk to this. And how could we? And they're just like, he's just like, shut up, like, just do it. Like, you know, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, that's really what he does. Yeah. He just kind of like has this insanely like impractical vision of the future and just genuinely believes that we can get there and inspires a bunch of and invest money like mm-hmm. actual risk into getting there and that's why like i think those like those types of leaders are, are rare and looked up on i know that's to a lesser degree it's what we were taught in the military or at least i don't know if we were actively taught it they try to actually actively teach it but a lot of times i think people that are teaching leadership in the military are just they're reading off the page but like what i understand about it is it's all about um, really having having a vision for where a group of people can be in the future, and and constantly being integrated in your expression of that vision, so that everybody understands exactly where you want the organization to go. Uh, it's better if they want it to go there as well. But even if they don't, they just they understand what you want, and they're all working towards that, and they trust you that you're integrated in that and that if they if they make a decision while you're not there because you've been so consistent with your messaging they know what decision you'd want so they're they're constantly acting on your behalf um whereas if you're disintegrated and you're you're not consistent with what you say everybody's afraid to do anything so you run this like very risk averse organization because people don't know what you actually want and they're afraid to get in trouble so that's like does that make any sense it very it really does uh, I had two thoughts while you were talking about that. One of them is that these concepts of faith and vision and um, trust, they they seem religious to me. Mm. Um, and, and I don't mean that as a criticism of the military or of Steve Jobs. Yeah. I mean that they've they've picked up on something that, that we can't get rid of mm-hmm. um, as humans. You know, we need religion. We, yeah. We are a religious um, species, I guess. Uh, well, we certainly like to follow a charismatic leader. I think it's more we than that. We enjoy being manipulated that way. Yeah. I think it's more than that, more than the prophet. I think it's about being part of uh, a system that can enact faith and that, like you say, something that is impossible and someone points at it and then they fund it. And maybe even if it's underfunded, people will still work for it as long yeah. as the the uh, the message of of the prophet is is consistent. Yeah. Um, if it if it rings true, um, there there's there's a critic I like. His name's Northrop Fry, and uh, he he writes about the Bible and literature, um, not the Bible in literature or the literature of the Bible but the Bible and literature, because he finds that the root of a lot of literature in our society is based in the Bible. Um, Mm. He finds that it's kind of dumb to take faith at any kind of literate, uh, literal value. Yeah. Um, You know, there, he doesn't find any value in, in, in saying that there's uh, really a Holy Trinity, that there are, bread that becomes flesh somehow or 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 whatever your, your your faith might be it's more that um there's something that we know is 
right now impossible, but through the trust in that thing, we can make it happen. Mm -hmm. And that was the same tone that the digital government speakers were using when they talk about digital government. They, mm. they talk about technology like it's trash, like it's not about technology or, or you know, the capabilities of it. it. It's about envisioning something and making it real. That's what digital government is about? To, to these speakers, yeah. Okay. That um, it's about having that, the, um, about seeing something that, that isn't there yet, but we'll, we'll get there. And what is like, as an idea, what is digital government? I've never heard the term. Yeah, I hadn't really either, but uh, I think they defined it in contrast to technology uh, by saying that digital uh, or digital government is really a term that should eventually go away because right now it's being used as a synonym for good, you know, for responsive government, for government that is modern, that is uh, adaptive, um, that functions the way that our society does, at the speed our society does, with the values that our society does. And so eventually they'd like to be able to say, it's just government. It's just good government. Okay. Yeah. Whereas technology can be a means to get there one way, but it's it's the how and not the the why. Right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't I didn't want to suppose, but I was kind of assuming when you meant digital government it was like some sort of like like voting was down to like the individual issue on a phone rather than voting for a leader you'd vote for right. individual policies on your iPhone or something like that like Right. Which actually could fit in with the, the idea of digital government but not in the way that I yeah. supposed. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, I'm describing it, but I don't know if I'm fully on board because okay. I'm just trying to point out the religious tone of mm -hmm. that message that and it's maybe one reason to be a little bit skeptical of it yeah um, because when i when i notice that uh people get so supportive uh or or, or so wrapped up um in a charismatic speaker i think it's more than just the charisma of the speaker you need yeah. charisma to carry the message and you need charisma to ensure it's consistent but um you think people like to be brought along to something like that's just a hijacking of a of a bit of source code that exists in the human brain yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and it and so it's good to be wary of of whatever idea it is that they're trying to convey, Any especially when idea. you can't clearly define what digital means. <laughs> yeah. And they, you're saying you can't or they can't. Uh, it wasn't clearly defined when uh, yeah. Yeah. it was, it was just, it was, it was a excellent, it was a great rhetorical device. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, maybe it's like the smart people version of that. Uh, have you seen that YouTube? It's like a, it's almost like a, a gif or something, but it's that guy, he does BitConnect. And he's like this Spanish guy, and he just yells like "Bitconnect!" <laughs> no, no. Oh, it's so it's like this conference where, you know, he's some sort of like it's he's trying to associate himself with Bitcoin. Yeah, and I don't know what kind of maybe it's a pyramid scheme or some sort of scam where he's he's having this big rally where there's all these somehow like contributors to Bitconnect, and he just keeps screaming Bitconnect, and but everybody's just like so into it. He sounds just like a like a like a preacher, right? He's just preaching this religion of BitConnect. 
and you'd watch it and you'd never you'd never fall for it but Pete, lots of people are falling for it and isn't they it, don't realize it's a satire it is it isn't satire oh he's, he's serious okay. like okay. He, it's a, it's it's a he's selling something and he's he's wanting people to invest in this whatever scheme um but it's just so obvious to you know to most people like that's why i became kind of an internet meme that huh. like he's just he's just trying to like hijack these systems that exist that are rewarding when there's this charismatic guy up there and like yeah um i, I don't i don't actually know if people bought his his message um but it like you know the people that were there i, I suspect a lot of them were yeah were not buying into it but it, he, he was trying to do what you're talking about just in a really yeah low resolution way i guess there's this zeitgeist that uh that's all around us and i think it's really hard to pinpoint what what the zeitgeist is while you're living it you know like mm -hmm. what the cultural uh environment is while yeah. you're living it uh in the 90s we can point to that and say it was about grunge and shoegazing and 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 self-conscious consumerism Gunge, gun, gr grunge grunge and what uh sh shoegazing was like the style of music where you know you oh. look at your feet and you know like nirvana oh, okay. or whatever yeah it's just a dance like shuffle or whatever yeah. Yeah. it's just easy to pinpoint like there's some cultural things that are happening and they represent this in the culture and it's because yeah. of this social or economic um uh m pattern and it's harder to do that today but like if you're gonna try and do one um I've heard this weird term called metamodernism, mm -hmm. which is where we're we're self-aware of the fact that we know about postmodernism, we know about modernism, and we don't like either of them very much. We're uncomfortable being postmodern, even though we're aware that that's sort of the state of the world. Can you actually define these terms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should have done that when I started out here. So post, so modernism was. You know, after World War II, people were um, aware of the horrors of the war. They felt that and they expressed that feeling with sincerity. Mm -hmm. um, they also expressed some degree of idealism that we are making it better, that we came out of this and we can, you know, appeal to technology and, and modern um, sensibilities, movements into cities, just yeah. the way that that people were becoming more efficient. This is like the fifties then. Yeah. 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 I think okay. that would be modernism and, and the sort of artistic sensibility of like Chrome and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all shiny. Like, yeah. yeah. I guess it, yeah, it bleeds certainly bleeds into the other decades, but yeah, yeah. it does. But I think the sixties and seventies when, when people started to realize what was happening in, in, in the, in the Vietnam war, um, post-modernism post starts to come out and people start to question whether um, whether there is some kind of central authority that could say whether we're improving, uh, whether there's truth at all. Mm -hmm. um, this is probably sounding very familiar to you yeah. and to anyone who's listening. Uh, the, the idea that uh, in a post-modern society, the appropriate uh, or the only real way that you can react is ironically yeah is with irony and and not by expressing sincere feelings right so yeah i, I certainly yeah hope to think i reject that um ideology at all levels i think yeah yeah and and, and i think i think it's easy to to fall into it though yeah um, 
and and maybe it is one of the only ways to survive sometimes when you're faced with the onslaught of information of mm. of uh, different people's perspectives of, of data just just sheer data coming at you yeah you know it, all available to you um there's it's undeniable that there's millions of perspectives whereas in in modernism it was just easier to 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 control it all yeah so i think the idea of metamodernism is that you're aware of both and you just start to fluctuate you swing from mm -hmm. one to the other um and so, and it, it's sort of been an undercurrent of 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 a lot of the topics tonight i think it would, yeah. maybe without us saying so but uh we're aware of um our efforts to feel things and to express things sincerely um and there's desire to have some sort of sense of authority to be able to say yes this is good and that's bad um but then you know we'll swing and realize that there's uh it's you know, even in the effort to do that, where the people's lives are trampled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm more comfortable with that, with the idea of, of finding that balance, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, you don't have to stay in, in a postmodern state and just, you know, deny that there that that anyone should feel and express things sincerely, and, and and only be able to cope with the world through irony and memes or whatever. Uh, but then, if you swing back to the this modernist idea of like, you know, that that there's an authority. I mean, that's dangerous too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly need. We we think we need balance. We. People need to be skeptical, but at the same time, there is some some things that I think we can agree. Again, to use the resolution again, we can agree that uh, at uh, at various levels of resolution. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, We're talking about uh, different re levels of resolution about what you can agree on. Yeah. Um, Like there are, yeah, different levels as a society that we can say things are right or wrong. Like if you and I are, have relatively consistent beliefs, like we can, between the two of us, we can say like what is right and what is wrong um, without without having to get in some philosoph philosophical debate whether how we arrived at what is right or what wrong. Like if I, you know, eat in front of you and you're hungry and I don't provide you food, we can agree that that's wrong. Like, you know, there's could be, and without, like, I know, uh, you know, different societies, we could say, oh, well, you know, maybe some society would agree that it's fine to do that because you have to, but I think at that level of analysis, we can say it's wrong because of our beliefs. And then we can expand that out into our country. So we can kind of, even though it's not concrete, we can say like, like that more of that modernist thing where there are rights and wrongs, not necessarily that the authorities are a mouthpiece for what they are but but yeah i, I do see see that balance um where whereas there's something we do often we also have to admit that we don't necessarily know where that right and wrong is right like that's maybe the balance is there is right and wrong 
we don't know where it is because modernism is more like if i get it it's like there's right and wrong and we know and here's where it is here's the right here's the wrong that's at least when i talk to somebody that is like i feel is possessed by that the ideology that i think you're getting at is it's they just that kind of conservative mindset like being gay is bad i don't care what anybody says it's just it's a bad thing and they just won't be convinced because they've been shown what's right what's wrong and they just accept it whereas then the other extreme would be you have no idea what's right or what's wrong and you don't even think it exists i think that's sort of one plane of of this idea yeah that um the the political one um where yeah it certainly sounds like you can have a person who's um of that age bracket coming from that 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 uh, cultural milieu uh, holding those views and then you know a millennial who disagrees <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, I, I, yeah um, I, we, we were talking earlier uh, about an author David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm not going to drone on about him be- because uh, I know you haven't had a chance to read him yet. Um, but the reason I like him a lot is that he does he did a great job of expressing sincerity at a time when everything was about irony. He wrote, yeah. you know, in the 90s and I think early early 2000. Um, <clears throat> he wrote about things that mattered and in full recognition of just how vast uh our information structures are mm-hmm. um, but even with that he was able to find a way to to sort of push through the the postmodern like multiple perspectives and and have someone express something real yeah yeah no i i think i like that i that idea is that there is truth out there, but you need to work for it. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be earned. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's like what there's two types of people I see that are in this, like this kind of world that, you know, you and Megan, uh, like with these acro yoga circles, right? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of specifically where some people embrace these ideologies, like not even ideologies, but these practices like yoga and or meditation and they use it to think deeply and and really consider things and, and i i feel it like it's an honest engagement of that activity whereas other people like i don't i can just tell when talking to them i'm, I'm having trouble articulating what's different about them but they i feel like they already know they got all the answers and that it's just it's all about the practice of everything they're talking about is the practice of meditation or yoga or all these like traditions they're not actually like giving insight into what they've found that I like, they're almost just like I had this one person that I asked about what she was really getting from yoga. She explained it to me like life is yoga and yoga is life. Circular. Yeah, exactly. Just, and she, she was being so, I don't think she was being authentic, but like she, she kind of like held me and looked, looked deep in my eyes. And like, she was trying to just, I think she was just trying to project something, project a mask of, what, how she wanted me to perceive her. I don't think that was any sort of genuine spiritual insight on her behalf. Maybe I just didn't get it, but she would have all these side of things that like this way she would speak that 
I, I just felt like she was a poser, you know, and I could be wrong, but I, I noticed that a lot in that community. And then there's also people that have spent that time like thinking deeply and they, they very much share their feelings and like emotions around certain issues. And it's, it's a, it's a very, I just noticed that divide. I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm not a real member of that community. Do you notice that as well? And is that something that's talked about in those communities, the fakers? I avoid people that bug me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, and so I don't look deeply into what their motivations or, okay. or whatever might be. Um, from the description that you made of that girl, she would probably bug me. And so I probably wouldn't give her much time or attention. Yeah. And um, I don't mean to paint her too one dimensional. Like she's nice. No, sure. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just find, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think the question that you posed is worth asking and worth considering of, you know, what do I get out of yoga and, and maybe that whole world of experiences? Um, because that might give me a clue about what an authentic experience is, you know, and then, and then what might be an inauthentic experience, um, and how to recognize that. Uh, so, uh, yoga for me is, uh, an accessible way to find the zone. Mm -hmm. um, the zone being that place where you uh, stop thinking about yourself and start being yourself. Um, you stop uh, thinking about thoughts and engaging with your thoughts and start to um, just do. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you find that zone when you go kite skiing. I'm sure it's a huge motivation for you. Yeah. Uh, when you go out. Um, uh, for me, doing the same paths, the same flows over and over, but finding new avenues to feel in them, mm -hmm. uh, that helps me because it's, it's habitual. Um, I'm very used to, to, to doing that thing. And, and, and so it's much easier for me to shut off my brain um, shut off the thinking part of my brain and, and just get into, all right, excuse me, are my bones and joints lined up now? You know, that, yeah. that's all I got to think about right now. Right. Yeah. As so you get into a bit of a flow state. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's the access to the flow state. And in that, if I'm accessing the flow state and I'm doing it on a regular basis, I'm not getting epiphanies. I'm not mm -hmm. getting insights necessarily or, um, or learning lessons about life or whatever, uh, which the yoga teacher might use to inspire you. Yeah. Um, great for them. You know, read a poem. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. Great poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not, you know, why I'm there. Yeah. Um, I'm there to do that regular recurrent thing that takes, you know, months or years or whatever. And it doesn't, it's not like it takes years for you to learn how to do the pose. Yeah. Maybe some people, it does because their flexibility or their strength or balance isn't there yet. But that's not the point. Is The point is you do it for years so that you've ingrained the habit so deeply mm -hmm. that next time you sit down, it's there, you start it, and you're in that zone quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally know what you mean. And I was actually just thinking about something similar recently. Um, I started surfing um, about three months ago. And I've just thinking over the last couple of weeks, it's like, man, I love surfing now. Yeah. 
And I was doing it for the last few months because I wanted to surf. And the few times I got up on the board, was, was a, it was fun, but it was mostly just an accomplishment. Whereas now I love it. And it's because I'm kind of, I've got just got to the point where when I'm paddling, I'm on autopilot. And when I'm diving under waves, I'm on autopilot and I'm kind of just flowing through it, stand up, get a wave. I don't really think about like, you know, when I'm starting it, it's like kind of balance, do this, look right, this, and it's just like, it's like a flow and I'm just kind of moving with the ocean in a really synchronized and smooth way. And the whole experience is a bit transcendent in that same way that you're describing your yoga practice. The challenge still comes to you. Right. It's not like you're in, it's not like it's so autopilot that you don't think about it and it, and you might as well be asleep. Right. Totally not. Like there's, 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 there's like you're flirting. They're always flirting that line Mm -hmm. with or else you're not improving. Like I think you get that flow state when you're, you're kind of going back and forth between comfort and hardness. And where I was before with, with surfing, it was just all hard. Yeah. There was no flow. Like, I, everything I was I was fighting for every mm-hmm. piece of it. Every time I ducked under a wave, it was like, yeah. do this, do this. And it's just a fight. Whereas now, like there are certainly lots of times where I was, I'm intimidated. I don't know what to do. I mess it up. But there's uh, the other half of the time where I'm just flowing with it. And I hope it's always 50-50. I always want to be pushing myself with it to keep that right. perfect balance. Which is why um, I'll give a certain amount of leeway to someone who seems kind of woo-woo in the yoga world. Yeah, okay. Um, because that that zone that flow it's hard to articulate mm-hmm. not just because people lack the words to be able to say it but because by definition it's it's an escape from words yeah you're getting away from language because language isn't suitable for what you're feeling mm-hmm. um and 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 the thing that you're doing is is an escape from language i think i've yeah hammered that point to the ground <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did a very good job articulating what these people haven't been able to so you know what i, sh- I should grant them a little bit more leeway right about that. Yeah. <laughs> well having said that woo woo is a thing and it annoys the hell out of me so i just avoid it <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah I, I mean but i guess i can see i was always it wasn't just that it annoyed me it also confused me because it was like these people it's like how do you spend so much time meditating that i like i don't yeah. i've meditated a few times and i think it's valuable i want to do it more but it's just like if you spend two hours a day meditating, like how are you regurgitating these, like these like one-liners that it's I, I, so. But it's interesting to say that they they just struggle to articulate it. Yeah. So maybe their brain just goes somewhere else. Um, well, it doesn't feel like they're being. It's it's more that they. What I, what I don't like it is I don't feel like they're being genuinely open. Whereas when you're explaining all this, like there's some elements to woo woo because you're talking about something that you know, is beyond articulation, right? It's, it's, it's a mental state that you're not thinking in words. So it's hard to talk about, but I genuinely feel like you're being open with your beliefs on it. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're telling me whatever's going through your brain right now, you're just speaking out. And that's not, that's what I'm talking. That's where I'm like, not even just the woo woo that bothers me. It's been people. And I don't feel like I'm interacting with a person. I'm interacting, interacting with like the projection Mm -hmm. of, how they want me to think of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one to, uh, to comment on. I think if, if someone came up to me and I asked them what they thought of yoga and they sort of just made sustained eye contact with me and, and, and you know, did, did something like that, yeah. I'd get the idea that they were trying to express 
that they can't be bothered to express that thing in words and that it's up to me to find it for myself, et cetera. And I think that's an obnoxious way to express that, yeah. but uh, it's a legitimate thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and then there's maybe another category that of, of people that's just like um, meditation is just one facet of a non-evidence-based lifestyle <laughs> that, uh, you know, reflects how they want the world to be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and that's, and I don't, I don't see meditation or yoga as, as a warning sign of that. I see homeopathy as a warning sign of that. <laughs> For sure. You know, yeah, we can all agree in homeopathy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how are we doing for time? Uh, we're about two hours, man, or uh, yeah. hour and 50 minutes. You want to call her here? I think so. All right. I got to get to sleep. All right. Yeah, sounds good, man. Well, let's do it again. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, it's great talking to Josh. You too. Thanks. Thanks for bearing with us during a very circuitous conversation. As always, I'd love to hear any constructive criticism. Shoot me an email at contrapodcast at gmail.com or Twitter at contra underscore podcast. Josh offers private LSAT tutoring out of Victoria, BC, and a link to his website is posted in the description. Thanks for listening.